This week sees the start of a new series in the BMJ, rethinking how hospitals, clinics, community services and public health work, with the aim of stopping the perverse blocks and incentives that prevent doctors and other healthcare professionals from providing the care that patients want and need. I'm Navjoit Lada, and in the podcast today I'm joined by Albert Mully, Professor of Medicine at the Dartmouth Institute and someone that listeners with an interest in quality improvement may know well. We're also joined by Jane Druce, an Evaluations Manager, and Donald Collins, a GP, both of whom work in one of the NHS Vanguard areas, this one in Hampshire, where new ways of delivering care are being tested. So to start, if we turn to Al Mully here, we're discussing high-integrity health systems, particularly how you might approach measuring and managing these systems with a view to designing better health care for patients. But can you tell us, what is high-integrity health? Uh, the, the phrase high-integrity health system came out of a conversation um, with uh, editors at the BMJ um, in March of uh, 2015. And uh, we thought there were so many different um, understandings of value-based systems um, that it would be helpful to put a new stake in the ground and say that um, easily avoidable ignorance left to persist and permeate the system um, does not represent the kind of integrity than any health system should aspire to. Okay, and you, you mentioned ignorance, and, and one of the things that um, strikes me reading the article is that learning is a key part, a key part of this system. But learning from beyond what I suppose healthcare professionals would traditionally think of their sources of learning. Um, yes, um, the, the the argument is that um, um, there are some assumptions that have to be challenged about healthcare. Um, the first is very related to the sustainability of health systems everywhere, whether they're um, market-driven like ours in the U.S. or um, uh, uh, tax-funded and free at the point of services in the U.K. And um, that sustainability um, can largely be explained by an assumption that the more services we deliver at greater cost, um, the health and well-being of individuals in the population. Another assumption is that evidence tells us what the right thing to do is for an individual. Um, a, a third assumption is that healthcare is is uh, so scientific and technically sophisticated that it's something that is delivered uh, to people who um, can understand or, or participate in, in the creation of the, the value of the service. Um, and there's a great deal of evidence uh, to counter um, each of those assumptions. And um, it doesn't get paid a lot of attention to. So the the, the argument is that um, um, overutilization of high technology diagnostic and hospital based care does not lead to um, greater health and well being. That evidence tells us about the probabilities of different outcomes of interventions, but it doesn't tell us what matters to patients as individuals and what trade-offs they're willing to make and not willing to make. And third, that engaging patients um, so that they can understand what's possible and the clinical teams can understand um, what would be most valued by them is the critical place of learning um, in order to achieve this state of high integrity um, avoiding um, easily avoidable ignorance. And maybe this is a good point to bring in um, Donal and Jane about um, what what you're doing, because I know that's a sort of example of, of these um, 
principles or challenging these assumptions in action. Um, Jane, perhaps you can describe what, what you're doing in Southern Hampshire. Sure. So, um, well, well, Daniel and I could probably do this pretty well together, actually. But one of the things that Daniel has piloted in his locality has been really asking that question about what matters to patients, what matters to you. So one of the things that Daniel's done has been to pilot some really simple patient feedback uh, approaches that absolutely ask that kind of question and make us challenge uh, ourselves on whether or not we're actually doing the right thing. And Daniel, perhaps you could tell us what, what does this sort of look like in practice? What, what does um, learning from patients involve? Yeah, so the patients and family are going to give us the solutions that uh, we never knew we needed, I think, because uh, in the traditional model, we've always thought, well, we're the doctors, we know best, um, and we've always made certain assumptions that patients are now actually telling us otherwise. So one of the issues in our area in the Gospel Peninsula with a GP recruitment issue, and um, when we tried to fix it was, well, we just need to find more GPs, and we kept on asking that question. Um, of where are the GPs to fill the holes um, and actually there aren't any out there. Um, so we went to the patients and said, uh, what do you think? And the patients uh, typically said, well, we're also happy to see other professionals. It's not just GPs uh, we need to see. So 80% sort of said, we're happy to see a pharmacist, a nurse practitioner, a healthcare support worker, appropriate, as long as the governance is there and the healthcare I'm given is uh, appropriate and good. Um, and so we, we've created an extended primary care team that's delivering uh, this new care with a smaller number of GPs than ever existed on the peninsula before. Um, and primary care still exists, and uh, we're getting better satisfaction rates from the uh, patient surveys we're achieving. Also, in terms of looking at the knock-on effect within the system, um, we seem to be flattening off our ever-increasing um, rise in attendance at A&E. And um, so patients are now beginning to be aware that if I need help, I will get it. Um, and, and as I say, as satisfaction is rising. The other interesting thing is, is um, people's ability to enjoy their job is rising as well. So within the same-day access service, which is where the urgent care is now given, um, we've managed to retain GPs who otherwise would have retired. They found a new lease of life. They're enjoying what they're doing. Um, we've given more responsibility to the nurses and nurse practitioners who are, um, you know, reveling in the, in the newfound value within the system. The numbers are interesting in that if you look at this time last year in the same day access service, uh, there was about four and a half thousand patients coming through per month, uh, and the numbers this year are around three and a half thousand. Uh, now we need some data people to look at the reason as to why that is. Um, but I think because we're listening to patients, we're sorting out the problems, uh, we're giving them appropriate appointment times, and within the practices, we're redirecting them to the right clinician first time. Uh, and as a result of that, we've been able to deliver the service on a better value system um, with better patient experience. Who is on your primary care team now then, and, and how is that care delivered if you like have you changed how you do consultations or where where the consultations take place so one of the issues the practices had when the crisis was happening was they were drowning in the urgent care on the day um, so we set up a service that was centralized uh, so when you as a patient ring your surgery is normal 
you'll say, I'm ill and can I be seen today, please? A clinician will phone you back and talk to you over the phone. And if you can be sorted over the phone and it's appropriate to do so, then you do that. And if it's appropriate that the patient's brought in, then you're brought in. And those clinicians will be mostly GPs and nurse practitioners doing the uh, telephone consultations. And 60% of calls are sorted out on the phone. And then of the 40% who come into the clinic, only 25% need to be seen by a GP. Uh, and the rest are then seen by um, advanced nurse practitioners, nurse practitioners, practice nurses, physio, pediatric nurse practitioner, and the plan in the coming years to bring in some mental health workers into that uh, arena as well. Uh, so the idea is you get the patient to the right clinician as early as possible in as few steps as possible. So you reduce duplication in the system. Mm-hmm. And presumably that's a big difference to your, your baseline figures because they sound very impressive. Um, yes, uh, uh, the figures are almost too good to be true. So as I'm looking for somebody else to look at the data and, uh, and, and try and come up with the uh, reasons why. Uh, great. And um, Jane, I'll just ask you, how have you gone about measuring the impact of these changes and what outcomes are you interested in? Uh, we've tried to look at measures that take, in, take on board the patient's experience, what they, are, what they would find acceptable and helpful to them. Uh, and the staff experience as well. Uh, We've tried to look at uh, what the operational metrics might look like, what the the patient flows are. So Donal mentioned earlier uh, about the uh, impacts on hospital and um, ED type activity. Uh, So we've tried to build in some of that as well um, and and looking at whether patients' uh, health outcomes are actually better or not as well. So as Donal said, looking for whether people are coming back again and again and some of the other measures we're beginning to use is around uh, a thing called a collaborate score and integrate score, which is just happening, which is measuring about how well we involve the patient in the shared decision making about uh, this is what's wrong with you, this is the treatment options, and this is the plan going forward. So moving from a very paternalistic model to a, a very patient empowered model. Um, and we know that uh, from evidence that if we do that, there are better outcomes, less adverse events, less complaints, less litigation. Um, so in our practice, for instance, we, we, we thought we were pretty good at shared decision-making with patients, and we did our collaborate score, which came out at 65. And then um, if, if uh, clinicians generally will send their scores between 40 and 85, if you're at the 40 end, you're very paternalistic, I tell you what to do. And if you're up at the 85 end, you're the completely sharing the decision with the patient end. So what's been interesting for us as a practice is um, actually we're not involved uh, doing as much uh, decision-making as we thought we were. And it's interesting when you talk to the patients about what they think, uh, they can sometimes um, measure it in a far better way than, than I can. So we're looking at a practice to try and change that and uh, uh, empower the patients more. And what's been the patient feedback to these these changes that you've made? Um, so the changes are just starting, but the, you know, in certain areas, patient feedback is very positive. Um, some of the collaborate score stuff that's happening now, patients are just feeding back saying, uh, gosh, that's a really interesting question you're asking me. Thank you for asking me that, because uh, that shows you care. Um, so I suppose that's my initial feedback. I, I think probably in a year's time you need to come back to me and say, have you been able to shift that collaborate score any higher? 
Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Al, this might be a good point to to come back to you to talk s- some more about some of the um, the work you've been doing then. So you've been um, helping some of these teams set up, set up these projects with um, workshops and other learning. Yes, no, uh, we are incredibly grateful for the opportunity to work with uh, um, Jane and, and Donald and, and uh, others from the five others from Southern Hampshire, but also the five other teams um, uh, supported by the New Care Models Program at, at NHS. And, and what we were doing was really trying to um, test whether or not some of these um, ideas about high integrity health um, um, made sense, um, not only at the front lines, but throughout um, a healthcare system, could they be applied? Um, Donald mentioned getting up in the morning and feeling good about going into work because of what you're doing. And um, I would characterize that as a sign that the in- intrinsic motivation um, is at work. And what we were trying to do with Collaborate is to um, provide people with a tool that um, wasn't about somebody telling them what to do, but it was a measure for them to hold themselves accountable for something that they thought was important in order for them to play their role um, in a high-integrity health system. No avoidable ignorance on the part of the patient about what's possible and no avoidable ignorance on our part um, about what they prefer. Um, And what we we hypothesized is that if, if you provided different measures and tools uh, for people to hold themselves mutually accountable to one another for for performing well in their role, we could make some progress in in bringing to scale uh, from the front lines of the system to system leadership uh, decision-making that is consistently informed by what matters most to patients. I don't know, is is that a fair, um, is that a fair summary, Jane and, and Donald? Um, we're linking it in quite closely to our STP development and the contract development as well. So something that I think is quite interesting for us is having having come to realise that these tools were so useful is that they formed part of the um, the ways that we would measure success um, across a whole um, contracting area, whether that's in an STP at the moment, it's obviously CCGs, but as things change um, to the new organisations. Uh, we want to include those measures as, as part of the contracting, and that is really helpful because it will give us um, a route to uh, to make sure that what we're doing is consistently used across a wider area, uh, following on from the piloting that Donald's been doing locally. Well, I just wanted to, that's been really helpful to sort of hear about that experience, which is kind of... Um brought it to life and and uh, you can see how it's how it's working in practice um one of the things i wanted to ask you al was what what do you see as being the the next steps and the the sort of big priorities to to scale this up to roll this up the the, the opportunities to learn uh from these vanguards that are working together across the country i think 50 in total of the different kinds is that right jane yes yeah, nearly 50 um, and, and then, of course, from the 44 SDPs, um, the opportunities to learn by using um, uh, similar measures uh, to test complementary hypotheses um, um, is, is something that we look forward to watching and to participating in the ex- to the extent that we could be helpful. 
we learned a great deal working with um, Donald and Jane and others, and we, we've, we've developed some language um, that we never would have um, as we came to know the forward view well. Um, so forgive me, Jane, you've heard this many times, but to, to some extent, um, the triple integration of the forward view, primary with acute care, mental with physical health, um, health care with social care, is, is uh, the way to build the foundation to test the sustainability hypothesis. I mentioned the easily avoidable ignorance for the, the woman who um, is facing the decision about her breast cancer therapy. Um, there's even um, more compelling stories about easily avoidable ignorance when we substitute really expensive, high technology, diagnostic or therapeutic interventions in the acute setting. Um, that fail to meet people's needs um, that could have been met by much more basic health care or social care. So the, the, what, what came out of our conversations with these 30 or so colleagues over the last seven months um, is that the, the full view represents the opportunity to test the sustainability hypothesis. If we can recognize, um, if we can recognize those times when we are doing it or a great risk of doing the substitution of really expensive, risky, potentially harmful care um, for something much more basic simply because we didn't learn what the patient needed and wanted. Um, we will never make healthcare sustainable. Um, if we can avoid those substitutions, we can. You've been listening to Al Mully, Jane Druce and Donald Collins discuss how care can be designed to work for patients. As I said, this is the first of a series and there is another article, this time about a new community approach to child mental health provision, coming soon. Subscribe so you don't miss out. Thanks for listening.